Hello and welcome back to Oh God, What Now? The podcast that didn't have shares in Greensill Capital. <laughs> I'm Naomi Smith. We're basking in the glow of last night's live show in London. It had only been postponed for 16 months, so the material was really fresh. Huge thanks to everyone who came or watched on Zoom. Ian Dunt was on the panel and Minnie Rahman, Campaigns and Comms Director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, was in the audience. And, spoiler alert, she's here too. But Ian, (laughs) before we get to Minnie, did you enjoy your return to the stage and treading the boards once again? Treading the boards, yes. No, I did actually. Well, it's just a nice change, isn't it? Because instead of sort of sitting at home in a funk of existential despair, uh, I could do it in public with other people. So it was quite, it's quite nice, actually. <laughs> I was pretty nervous, though. Uh-huh. No, I, I, I done one, I'd done one book thing at a festival, which had about 12 people at it, but it still kind of broke the seal, you yeah. know what I mean? So it was like, okay, I'm in front of humans now, and their faces like reflect personality and speech. And so I, I got over the sort of general post-lockdown hump on, on that bit. And Minnie, this was the first time you'd met us all in person rather than over Zoom. And she's still here. And maybe she's come back today. But I mean, like, how how disappointing was reality versus... Uh, not disappointing at all. You were all the exact height that I imagined you to be. So that's a good start. Um, but no, I had a great time. I thought it was a brilliant show. I thought the audience was, like, super into it. I was super into it. It was great. Aww. Now, Ian, this week, uh, the UK indie band British Sea Power changed their name to simply Sea Power. And that was to separate themselves from the recent, quotes, wave of crass nationalism. Uh, And of course, GB News got into a very predictable rage over it. Um, The band even got on page three of The Telegraph. What do you think about all of this? What I did, I mean, A, it doesn't really matter. And no one should get too upset about these things. I do find it kind of like indicative of something that is quite sad, which is this... That, you know, when they, when they called themselves that, it was, you know, this is a very pro-EU sort of band and very sort of, you know, multicultural, all this stuff. They've, they've done songs on it. I mean, they're really committed on this stuff. And clearly when they said British Sea Pie, it had that kind of wry, kind of ironic, like that almost that thing you get a bit with Blur of like kind of like an echo of the old sort of imperial stuff. But you're in a country now that's modern enough to talk about that stuff while still being sort of fond of the country, but kind of mocking at the same time. And it takes a lot of self-confidence you know, to be self-deprecating, to be right, to, to mock yourself. You know, the, the people that you meet that are like insisting on how beautiful they are or how strong they are. These are not self-confident people. These are people who are having a crisis of confidence. So the fact that this band are now looking at the country and thinking, well, I don't want to use the word British anymore because that wryness has gone. You know, like the irony has gone. And now mm. it's all about this chest thumping. We're the best in the world. Sort of stuff. That... It's a small story, but it does kind of speak to this really depressing process that is going on in the country. And, and do you think that like British is becoming the new English in that regard? Because I think English is a, a phrase people have distanced themselves from because of that sense of nationalism for a longer period of time. Is there a risk now that, that the Johnsonian government and the global Britain and, you know, ruling the waves again kind of bombast is is tarnishing the word Britain in the same way? Yeah, perhaps. I don't know. It's so, I, I find that those two words are, walk, are walking in lockstep at the moment. They're very different in my head, but they're not for many people. I mean, and again, when you look at the old Britpop stuff, a lot of it was that yearning for a, It was quite English a lot mm-hmm. of the time. You know, if you look at an album like Park Life or something like that, mm-hmm. that, that is a very English sort of piece of sort of reminiscence and, and melancholy. And so I, I think that they're kind of wrapped up in each other. But the fact that, we, that we're no longer 
confident enough to express that sort of sense of wry self-deprecation does kind of encapsulate many of the sort of depressing feelings I've had about being in this country <laughs> over the last six years. Well, let's talk about something much more important, um, which is that uh, a YouGov survey found that 2%, 2% of British people think they could beat an elephant in a fight. <laughs> right um, now, look, you, you were terrified when there was a rat in your back garden. You were what terrified when a cat invaded your home this week. What the fuck is going what, on? What is the biggest animal that you reckon you could take on? <laughs> This, this and beat just, in a fight. Can we have Dorian back? I don't know. <laughs> it's just character sabotage. I don't. I, mean, I don't think I could really take any animal in a fight because the thing, like the big ones, are obviously scary, but the little ones just freak me the fuck out. Like you know, like my like the, my main thing with mice is I just think like, well, what if they get like under my trousers? And, like, put, like, so I don't, and not in a good way. Right? Thomas, Thomas, there's no. I can't think of an animal that I would win in a fight against. Okay, fair enough. I think I think that's that's probably probably safe to assume. Now, uh, <laughs> Minnie, it's been a really sobering week uh, with, of course, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report issuing a code red for humanity. Climate is obviously very much a migration issue too. So, do you think it featured in the report enough? Yeah, I think so. So the report itself is very, very dry. It's very technical. It's focused on scientific processes and and what's happening to the climate itself. It does make some allusion to the fact that migration is an adaptation strategy to a climate crisis, but it doesn't go into it in any depth. The IPCC before has raised migration as an issue and said that actually international governments do need to think about it. Now, the thing is, if we had a sensible government, if we had a government that was like really serious about protecting human rights, protecting the lives of people in the global south and tackling climate change, then they would view that holistically and think about the measures that are needed internationally in order to not only help people move, but also to give them the right to stay in the countries where they live. So what that looks like is looking at things like changing the definition of refugee, so mm. that it includes people who are moving from a climate-affected area. But it also looks like sharing technology, sharing resources, sharing infrastructure, helping people learn job skills or technical skills which allow them to either transition to work in another country or keep some kind of work in the country where they originate from. So there are lots of things that a government could do, but but our government is nowhere near considering any of those things as a, as a reality. And they'll have to get to grips with it soon. And also here, just before we came into record, I saw that there's now a new Thames flood risk map. They've had to update it and it doesn't look like the current Thames barrier is going to be able to hold. And it was basically showing which bits of London are likely to be very regularly underwater and... uh, where we are right now is is among them, like sure. even even this far north of the Thames. Yeah, yeah. So uh, maybe we need to learn some new skills so that we can actually be employable elsewhere too. Our special guest this week is Gracie Bradley, interim director of the Human Rights Campaign Group Liberty. Hello, Gracie. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Gracie, last week Apple announced a new system which scans users' phones for images of child sex abuse. Uh, Privacy advocates have uh, slammed the technology, warning it could be used as a a kind of backdoor way to spy on people. What's the Liberty view on all of this? I mean, Liberty's view is that child protection is incredibly important. 
as with so many of these new tweaks to technologies, they're often justified in the name of something that's really, really important and that we all support. In reality, the implications are often far wider reaching and less publicised. And actually, I know we're going to talk about the policing bill in a minute. But if you look back to the initial coverage of the policing bill and the government press releases, at the top of their press release was essentially the fact that this was going to bring in stronger child protection measures. And yet, look what else it contained. Um, so I think we have to look under the hood a bit um, and be a little bit critical because we often hear about weakening tech safeguards, you know, in the name of fighting crime, fighting terrorism, protecting children. And actually, it often has implications for the security of every single one of us. Well, if you want to be a little bit critical of the government, you have definitely come on the right show. (laughs) (laughs) So on the show this week, internal squabbling hits the Conservatives once more as Johnson threatens to demote Rishi Sunak. Is this the old Tory party reasserting itself? And what happens next as the party emerges from the pandemic? Gracie fills us in on the government's increasingly draconian attitude to personal freedoms, from the right to protest to the attack on judicial review to deportation flights and more. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, without doubt, the strangest tale we've ever told on the podcast. (laughs) Mum, there's a prime minister in the kitchen. Minnie tells us the remarkable story of the time David Cameron came to tea. (laughs) Can the rest of us beat that for bizarre brushes with the politically powerful? I doubt it. First this week, are the Conservatives stealing Labour policy again by kicking off an internal civil war? (laughs) Boris Johnson reportedly threatened to demote Rishi Sunak to Health Secretary last week after a letter from the Chancellor calling for COVID travel restrictions to be lifted was leaked. Number 10 has refused to deny the rumours, but senior Tories have warned Johnson against losing another Chancellor. Ian, is this just August silly season stuff? Are we reading too much into it or is there something going on? Look, I mean, there's a really long history of chancellors and prime ministers not getting on. And that's not sort of a coincidence. It's kind of a feature of the system, which is, you know, the prime minister wants to promise a bunch of shit and the chancellor wants to go, well, the money. (laughs) So, I mean, that's you can see why the tension would be in that relationship. And then it's doubled up by some kind of deep ideological differences and some extremely superficial differences. Because this didn't seem to be about money. Well, this particular instance didn't seem right. to be about money, but in the background, you have the conversations about sort of social care, you have the conversations about how, the, how they're going to hit sort of net zero, who's going to get hit by that. Um, you have the broader sort of conversation of, you know, Boris Johnson coming into power and the levelling up agenda and Rishi Sunak going, well, we're about to do austerity again, just for shits and giggles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the, that's the sort of ideological part that plays in the background. And, you know, Boris Johnson just does not have any convictions at all. We don't need to relitigate that stuff. I think, we're, you know, we, we, most people are in agreement, even his supporters. Uh, Rishi Sunak has terrible convictions, you know, so you can make your choice of which of those two you prefer. I mean, but Rishi Sunak does, I think, actually believe in sort of fiscal discipline and things like that. He's wrong-headed about it, but I think he genuinely believes in it. Um, then there's this sort of superficial bit, which is, which I think would probably has a, a much more important day-to-day impact, right? So when Rishi Sunak puts out his stuff, you know, it comes with a sort of weird Rishi logo shit. <laughs> fucking, he's putting it out there. I mean, I don't think um, anyone's under any, oh, I wonder if this guy wants to be leader. It's like, okay, we know what he's going for. And he gets, when you look at the polling of Tory party members and the public, there's a lot of support out there mm-hmm. for him. I think there'll be less when people see more of him because he's a less impressive figure when you see him at length. But he's quite photogenic and, and he's given people a lot of money. And so on that basis, 
And I think that Boris Johnson will actually be quite emotionally outraged by the fact that he isn't getting the attention Attention. that he was getting before. And I imagine that's quite an important role in the kind of dynamics there right now. I saw before we came into the studio that the mail was running quite heavily on it as well and kind of showing the waning support for Johnson within the Conservative Party. One minister told the FT that support within the Parliamentary Party was split 50-50 between the two men. So is this a sustainable position for Johnson? Are we seeing an actual schism about to emerge I think so. I mean, look at the new Labour years, right? We had like over a decade of much more intense shit than this. And, and you could still keep, you could still sustain it. The key thing to me is Boris Johnson's personal approval ratings and the Tory approval ratings. We've seen a decline. We've seen a shrink in the lead in the last few weeks. If that was to continue, if Labour were to actually start polling consistently above the Conservatives, then the Rishi Sunak chat would get very, very intense indeed. Gracie, we've got um, a cabinet, I think, that can probably, in the kindest form of words, be described as draconian. How much does the the famously sort of hands-off Johnson set that tone when it comes to things like civil liberties? He, you know, he's obviously very much a, a kind of libertarian prime minister with a very authoritarian home secretary, and he just kind of seems to be happy to go along with her. Well, I mean, look, I prefer to, I try and focus on, you know, the collective rather than the individuals, because I think we get into a whole load of kind of Westminster intrigue that sort of undermines the gravity of some of the stuff that these people do. But also, it's a complete myth that Johnson's a libertarian. I don't know why people keep saying it. Um, he did the gangs matrix when he was London mayor in response to the 2011 uprisings. Uh, he wanted to buy yep. the water cannon and then it was unlawful and they had to give them back. Um, so we don't, we're not dealing with the libertarian. Um, we need to dispel ourselves of that. And, you know, it's easy to pin everything on the Home Secretary. That's exactly what happened, you know, with Theresa May and the hostile environment. But even then, you know, it was David Cameron's logic of bringing net migration down to the tens of thousands that meant that a policy like that was politically plausible. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it's very easy to give some of these folk an easy time, depending on who's trying to style themselves as an authoritarian. But but Johnson's record on civil liberties is is not a great one. Minnie, in, in further conservative fun... The Guardian just revealed that David Cameron has made £7 million for part-time work at Greensill Capital before it collapsed. Uh, what, what did Greensill get for that money, do you think? I mean, they got bankrupt. That's, <laughs> that's what they got from it. Yeah, I mean, what he actually got paid for was grand for being a part-time advisor, plus around £500 grand as a bonus, and then he sold around 3.3 million in Greensill shares. And that was all over two and a half years. Now, obviously, they were paying him for his connections and his ability to what amounted to texting his pals in government and in the civil service. And I think if you do the maths on that, that works out to around £134,000 per text message, <laughs> <laughs> which is just absurd, an absurd amount of money. Now, Obviously, what they did get from his involvement, which they didn't want and probably couldn't predict, was that they got a whole bunch of scrutiny. I mean, I just don't really have a concept of how much the public would have understood what was happening at Greensill when it went bankrupt Mm. if David Cameron hadn't been involved and that hadn't kicked off in a big way publicly. And obviously, it fit with the conversations about cronyism that were happening throughout COVID and with contracts and and Matt Hancock. So it drew a lot of attention. But without Cameron's involvement, it might have gone very under the radar. People that actually have influence <laughs> and could have <laughs> could have got a government contract. I wonder what their texts are worth. And it, you know, it's hundred and whatever was one hundred forty three thousand, one hundred thirty four thousand. 
per text. But imagine anyone that you could find someone who would have gone about it in an even more uncouth way. Like it's like he wasn't even subtle. Like one of the things about that kind of entitled Etonian born to rule thing is you kind of think that they just know the manner, you know, to do this stuff. And in fact, he just did it like a little sort of kindergarten twat. Like he was just all over the fucking place with it. Putting kisses on the end of text messages. <laughs> oh, <Jesus. laughs> I wonder how much he charged for kiss. Um, Ian Cameron's spokesperson said that remuneration was a private matter. Is it? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it isn't. Um, I mean, look, you can't you can't pull this off because, uh, as Minnie's just outlined, I mean, the reason that he is given that position and this money is because of his influence. And the reason he has that influence is because he's the former Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He decided to use that when he should have been sat in his fucking shed thinking about what the fuck have I done to my country by my own grotesque sense of self-interest. Instead, he sat there texting away to people in order to further his own financial ambitions. Now, on that basis, no, that is in the fucking national interest to know what he is doing and how much he got paid for doing it. And anyone that could credibly claim otherwise should spend some good hard time by themselves in a darkened But we had sleaze that kind of, you know, was the ultimate nail in the coffin for the major government. To an extent, some of it mired the end of the Brown government. The expenses scandal, I mean, there wasn't a party in Westminster that wasn't implicated to a greater or lesser extent. Are we now just immune to this kind of stuff? I mean, this is a question for all of you, really. To what extent does these big headlines and these big numbers and people being on the make while either still having their parliamentary pass or being a sitting MP really matter to the public anymore. So we, talk, so we talked about this recently and we were sort of com- coming up with this depressing idea that maybe people just don't even think that anyone will hold these standards. So therefore no one can be damaged by them. And that is really dangerous because it, it, it means things have gotten so bad. You don't even, you know, it's like the point where someone just stops expecting their partner to even stop cheating. You know what I mean? Like they've just given up on the whole idea or whatever. So that would be very bad. However, okay, to to be at my most optimistic, and this is still not that optimistic, it could be that, you know, as you're coming out of the pandemic, I do still think that the thing that would damage the government the most is the fact that people think it doesn't really know what it wants or why it exists. You know, just this meandering pointlessness to the government. And if that takes hold together with the incompetence and individual decisions and with a background sense of sleaze and in it for themselves, I think maybe that kind of combination of things, that sort of sludge of moral and practical inadequacy could start doing them some serious damage. Next up, we're going to get into the nitty gritty with Gracie Bradley, our guest this week, Interim Director at Liberty. Now, Gracie, but before we get into kind of talking about the government, just give us a bit of uh, background on Liberty, what you do there, your your route to becoming director. What was your journey? Oh, yeah, a long journey. It feels like, no, I suppose not that long at all. So Liberty is one of the UK's oldest human rights organisations. We were founded in 1934 in response to oppressive policing of the hunger marches. And our mission now is the same as it was then. It's about standing up to power. Uh, And our mandate is really civil liberties and equality. And we have an amazing investigative journalism unit called Liberty Investigates. We have a brilliant policy and campaigns team. Uh, We have a really dedicated advice and information team that gives advice directly to the public. And we also have a really stellar litigation unit. So we kind of do what I like to think of as the kitchen sink theory of advocacy, which is just (laughs) throwing everything at it. In terms of my journey, I mean, I started working at Liberty in 2017. I'd primarily been working with 
migrants and people who had survived torture and other forms of human rights violations. And I really, I was tired of writing the same letters that said, this person is traumatized, please could they not share a room in their asylum asylum accommodation? Um, Please could this person have a medical legal report, etc. I really wanted to change the system that people were having to navigate because it was really cruel. Um, And I could see that Yes, there were really great exemptions for torture survivors, but the government was just responding by defining people out of the category of torture survivor. And I really wanted to do work that would kind of lift the base level of treatment for everybody going through the immigration system. Um, So at that time, Liberty was doing a lot on the hostile environment. I joined as a policy and campaigns officer. I was promoted in 2018, and then I started working across policing, counter-terror, tech and surveillance. And then last year, our wonderful permanent director, Martha, headed off on parent leave, and I was competitively recruited to be the director. And I've been really excited to try and lead campaigns that get people behind not just what we don't want to see, but really the kind of world that we do want to see, because I think that that's really what gets people up and mobilised and out of bed in the morning. Um, And that's where we are. So you say that Liberty's been around since the 30s, and during that time it will have faced better and worse governments. I think it's pretty safe to say that the current government um, is certainly making your cause ever more relevant uh, with a much more restrictive approach to civil liberties than we've seen in the last couple of decades. We're going to be looking uh, at some of the key legislation, but I really would like us to start with the judicial review bill that was recently introduced. And for now, it seems to be being used mainly to restrict access to review of asylum cases. Can you just give us a, you know the, the kind of the top lines for listeners about what's in the bill and why it's dangerous? Absolutely. So the Judicial Review Bill uh, was published not so long ago. And in Liberty's view, it's part of a broader and systematic plan to put the government outside of accountability. Um, So this bill was touted as a means to restrict access to judicial review. And that's a legal process that all of us can use to challenge government agencies and public authorities when we think that they've got something wrong. The bill is, at the minute, as you say, mainly going to affect immigration cases and restrict people's ability to bring legal challenges in that area. But we should understand it as a first step towards making it harder across the board for people like us to challenge wrongdoing and failures of the state. And I mean, the political agenda behind this is, you know, in liberties and others' views, a kind of thin-skinned attempt to respond to the fact that the Supreme Court said in 2019 that Parliament shouldn't be prorogued. But the real-life effect of this will be felt far beyond Westminster. Minnie, what's been your experience of judicial review with reference to, to migrant cases at JCWI? Yeah, I mean, judicial review has just become so important for migration cases, usually because it, most people have exhausted all other options. It's kind of like a last resort especially as appeal rights have also been repealed over the last few years. Most people that we have as clients, they use it several times throughout their journey to getting status. And we use it to challenge things like wrongful detention or really poor decisions. Um, We have examples of using it to stop really unwell clients from having to sit through a home office interview. And I think in that context, we use it a lot of the time to challenge the home office because they have such poor decisions making anyway. And I think the Home Office uses the kind of number of JRs. They skew that data 
to to have it as a reason to point the finger at kind of do-gooder lawyers who are intervening in the system. So-called activist lawyers, or how dare they? Yeah, Yeah. activists, exactly. And I think actually what we find in our experience is that we start a JR process and then eventually the Home Office has to back down and agree agree with us or the court agrees with us because the decisions being made by the Home Office are so, so poor that they can't do anything else. You know, the Home Office is its own worst enemy. And if we had a department that was reasonable, this process wouldn't need to occur at all for migrants. They also then use, by the way, that fact that they so often lose these cases as justification for why judicial review should no longer apply to them. Mm. So during the panel, when the panel was sort of brought together to look at judicial review reform, the Home Office said, oh, it can cost us about £10,000 a case on judicial review. Now, that number was fucking bullshit, completely made up. And in fact, later in an FOI, they said it can cost up to £10,000, not every time. But what they did was they included costs in that calculation. So there was just the, the things that they had to pay because they had behaved unlawfully were part of their argument for why no one should be able to hold them to account for their unlawful for their unlawful actions. To which the basic response to the Home Office is just, well, stop fucking behaving unlawfully and you <laughs> won't have to pay the costs. Gracie, uh, could the remit of this bill be expanded? You know, what, what other cases could it affect beyond those around migration? Well, I mean, as I say, judicial review is a critical route for everyone to challenge public bodies when they fail. So it was used repeatedly to challenge coronavirus laws when care standards fell. It's been used by disabled people to get the support that they're entitled to under the law. Um, you know, so there's a there's a real, you know, if you think about all of the different areas in which government and public authorities make decisions about us and our lives and how we'll be treated, judicial review has the potential to be used in any of those areas. So the ramifications are potentially very broad. At the start of, of this section talked about the wider threat that this is just one piece of legislation uh, that is building up to that. There's also, of course, the notorious police crime sentencing and courts bill uh, bringing new police powers, including very famously the restriction on noisy protests, nuisance, location of protests. And, And the government claims that this is a law for use against disruptive protests, like when Extinction Rebellion stopped public transport. Where's Liberty's view on this and, and you know, the, sort of the fundamental right for people to organise and demonstrate, you know, against government power? This bill, I mean, at Liberty, we call this bill the police crackdown bill because that's what it is. Um, and it really is an attempt to extinguish one of our most fundamental and cherished democratic freedoms. I mean... I don't want to be too doom and gloom about it because the reality is is that we don't protest because there's a law that says we can protest. We protest because that's our freedom. So whatever this law says, whatever becomes law, it's not going to stop people from protesting. What it is going to do, though, is create more confrontation between protesters and the police. It's going to lead to more scenes like the scenes that we saw at Clapham Common earlier this year. Um, And that's something that even senior former police officers have come out and said they don't want to be involved in. They've said they think this bill is a threat to democracy. Hasn't there even one of the big policing unions has come out and said we don't want this bill? This isn't going to help us. They've said they don't want it. I mean, Liberty and Friends of the Earth uh, did some freedom of information requests that unearthed that actually the Police Federation and the APCC weren't even consulted on the provisions of the bill. Um, So, I mean, it's pretty unpopular across the board. But I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that, you know, this is part of a wider trend in an attempt to crack down on protest. If we think about Stansted 15 protesters who stopped a deportation flight, they were charged 
the counter-terror law. Um, we rem- should remember that the Met in 2019 unlawfully banned protests in London because of Extinction Rebellion. Um, during the pandemic, we've seen a nurse fined 10 grand for organising a protest about her working conditions. And, you know, there were horse charges against BLM protesters. There's There's been a really high level of repression against protest in this country for a long time. This bill is another step in that. But um, I suppose the other thing I want to say about the policing bill is that it isn't just about protest. And we really shouldn't um, ignore the fact that it will also drive a coach and horses through the rights of racialized working class youth uh, because it wants to increase stop and search and make it easier to put civil orders on some young people. And it's also going to pose a real horrible challenge to gypsy Roma traveller communities who just want to go about their nomadic way of life because it's going to make it easier for police to criminalise them. So yes, this bill is an attack on our fundamental freedom of expression, but it's also an attack on some really marginalised communities in this country and we shouldn't lose sight of that. Ian, I'm kind of curious to know whether we're imitating other countries in doing this. Global Britain nonsense that the government often comes out with claiming that we're somehow leaders in the free world and setting you know democratic rights we only know about the hong kong pro-democracy protesters because they were noisy and we offered them uh, asylum as a consequence they were offered uh, uh, bno passports but it seems like they could arrive here and find that they <laughs> would also be falling foul of the law if they were to do a similar noisy protest here. What, what's going on? Where does this put us globally? I mean, I've got to, I should point out at the beginning of this, just to say that there, I mean, if you've been to protests in Europe, the, the European policing response to demonstrations can often be absolutely very, very severe indeed, um, and involve the kind of weaponry that we don't typically see in this country. So there are some areas in which the British sort of policing and protests is superior to what you see even in comparable countries. I think that what, what we're seeing with this bill is a continuation of a process that really started with the 1986 Public Order Act. So that was the start, really, of putting this sort of subjective assessment in the hands of the police, especially Section 5, which is, you know, Anyone can get to look at harassment, alarm or distress. Anytime a policeman suspects that there could be public disorder. And these are very broad terms. And it's left up to the individual policeman's judgment or policewoman's judgment as to whether they've been encroached. What's happened here is that you've just added another idea to it. You've just added essentially the, the concept of noise. You look really at like the idea of harassment, alarm or distress. I mean, these are really harassment. Fine. Alarm. It's really, these are very, very open terms as, as well as distress. You know, the kind of things this is used for, um, is, you know, when it, 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 you're essentially saying if anyone could take, um, who could find, if, if they think they've heard threatening, abusive or insulting language. Now, on any I mean, they just need to listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, we would we would sort of have a bit of trouble actually. But like on any protest, you're going to hear people swearing, right? You will, okay. And then if, in fact, you'll hear it on any fucking street or pub, right? But on protests, is where the police are actually thinking in this way, and they will take someone, they will charge them with these offences for literally swearing. Okay, so I mean, this is what happens when you put uh, too much power in the hands of police, too much ability for them to sort of enforce this legislation on the basis of their own subjective judgment. Gracie, what are the weaknesses and the, the, the pressure points in the bill that listeners could affect? Presumably there are going to be amendments, debates in Parliament that they could be pushing their MPs on or amplify. What, what would your call to action on this bill be for listeners? 
So, I mean, it's important to note that there were essentially no Conservative rebels on this bill as it went through the Commons, um, which is incredibly disappointing given what a lot of Conservative backbenchers have been saying about civil liberties and free expression over recent years. Um, The bill will head to the House of Lords. Uh, You can't really lobby the House of Lords in the same way. And at this stage, I would be saying to people, take to the streets. Um, there is, I believe, a day of action planned later this month. I think it's really important that people show up. Uh, that's organised by the Kill the Bill Coalition. Um, you can, of course, you know, it's likely that there will be some kind of ping pong where the House of Commons has to consider amendments made by the House of Lords. And it will be really important that people's MPs at that stage are maybe more willing to stand up than they were last time, and especially those Conservative backbenchers. So if that's one of the areas that you live in, please go to a constituency surgery. Uh, MPs are way more likely to listen to you if you turn up or if you call their office than if you send them a kind of pre-written email from a campaigning group. So do make your voice heard with your MP. But I think crucially, it's really important to get keyed into those grassroots mobilisations that are happening. As I say, the Kill the Bill Coalition is organising them and to also think about, okay, well, even if this bill becomes law, how will we still mobilise? How will we make our voices heard? Because it's in making it unenforceable, really, that it will be defeated. Minnie, it's not just groups like BLM and Extinction Rebellion and, you know, people on the progressive wing of politics that like to demonstrate. Obviously, we've seen uh, lots of anti-vax demonstrations. We've seen far-right demonstrations. Is this therefore an issue that might kind of transcend the traditional spectrum? Are they going to, is there going to be pushback to this bill from the likes of, you know, Farage and his march down from the northeast? I mean, I haven't seen very much. I mean, I've seen some people who are saying, you know, we should have the right to protest. You know, it comes with our freedom of expression, freedom of speech. But the unity, I don't think, will be there that's needed because these two groups of people just cannot communicate in the same way. And I I think for the kind of protest that Gracie's talking about, you need a sense of organisation and you need a bit of kind of yeah, unity across the board. But can you imagine a protest with those two groups at the exact same time? I don't, I would kind of prove the government's point, I think, if that happens. <laughs> uh, now, Gracie, in this trinity of bills, uh, the Electoral Integrity Bill, as it was called, it's now called the um, Elections Bill, enshrines voter ID in law. Even though we know voter fraud is, is known to be a pretty negligible problem, there are other uh, issues with the bill. But it it's it's kind of widely acknowledged as a, a voter suppression move, and that's where a lot of the focus of attention has been on this elections bill. What, what's Liberty doing about it? What can our listeners do on that front? Well, I mean, so this bill is in the much earlier stages. It's barely been scrutinised by Parliament at this stage. Um, so we would be encouraging people again to write to their MPs. Um, but I think also it's important to actually humanise the impact of this kind of legislation. Uh, we know that the elections bill will have a disproportionate impact on certain groups of people because there are, you know, the people who don't have photo ID tend to come from communities that are already marginalised and already under represented by our political system. So I think it's really important to actually tell parliamentarians those human stories as to, you know, well, this is who I am, this is why I don't have ID, if it's safe to do so. Because at the moment, again, even on those Conservative backbenchers, I'm seeing a lot of case studies retweeted by Conservative MPs that would not be mitigated by this bill that are about postal impersonation and so on and so forth. 
it's really important to counter some of that some of that misinformation but as i say we can't fight these issues piecemeal because they're part of a joined up strategy and really what we need to be doing is getting out there and organizing towards what we want to see in the world what we want our government to be doing um how we want to organize ourselves politically what we think a good society looks like because if we just keep being drawn in defensively by this constant drip of threats we're not going to get out of this cycle Ian, where does Pretty Patel figure in the pantheon of of bad Home Secretaries? Oh, is she our <laughs> is she our worst for civil liberties? Well, it's hard. You see, I think you would. I mean, a by the way, Theresa May probably would have been the worst if she could have had her way. But unluckily for her, and luckily for us, she was there in that sweet spot of Lib Dem Tory coalition where they needed to undo the things they claimed to criticise about the Labour Party before them. So that sort of saved us on this front, not on immigration, but it did on, on many civil liberties issues. Um, I think New Labour was New Labour was like a full spectrum attack, really. And you look at people like Blunkett, even sort of Jack Straw, even before the sort of September the 11th attacks. You know, there is a a sort of slice of modern Tory opinion that likes to pride itself on civil liberties. That's essentially, I think, a a very myopic um, and reductionist and exclusive sense of civil liberties, which is really civil liberties for people like us, right? If you're someone that they can't imagine what your life is like, then you can go get fucked. If you're a BLM protester, you can go get fucked. However, for people like them, so for things like habeas corpus and identity cards, there is that David Davis strain in the Conservative Party. And that protects it, I think, from getting quite as bad at the moment as it was on the New Labour. However, I'm doing lots of howevers now. This is a (laughs) problem. Um, The distinction now is that it's embedded in the culture war, right? So there's an attack on institutions, which simply did not exist under the New Labour period and does now. And there's also a really divisive attempt that, you know, Priti Patel barely bothered to conceal that she was targeting specific protesters with what she was doing, which is particularly dangerous when you think about the fact the discretionary power that you're handing to the police. Because you've got the Home Secretary in Parliament saying, I'm looking at BLM and I'm looking at Extinction, Re- Agenda- Extinction Rebellion. You know, this is, these are the guys that essentially I want you to go for. So on that basis, it's sort of, it's less comprehensive, I think, than the assault on civil liberties that was happening under New Labour. But it's more sort of toxic and more dangerous because it's part of that culture war attack on the institutions and on individual groups. Just briefly going back to the elections bill, that's a bill that hands a lot more power to uh, Michael Gove as Secretary of State. So it's not really a, a pretty Patel thing uh, per se. But there are, of course, rumours that he may be about to be given the Home Secretary position. Uh, any any views on that? Do you think there's any credibility behind those rumours? I can't tell you whether that's whether that adds up or not. I mean, at the moment, I haven't heard anything that would suggest that it's complete nonsense nor anything that suggests that there's any real substance behind it. My impression was that Boris Johnson's pretty much broadly happy with what Pretty Patel is doing. They, they're kind of cross with her. Apparently, so we're told, for not bringing the numbers down further on, on sort of migrant arrivals this summer. I don't really see that. I mean, she's posturing in precisely the way that he would want. It, it, it would seem odd if that was the flip that happened right now. I mean, frankly, I've got to tell you, I would fucking take it, by the way. Was, uh, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, would yeah. you prefer, of course? Oh, of course, yeah, 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 you would. Scumbag that he is, he's not as dreadful as she is. Now, Gracie, the Home Office is running a series of long-haul mass deportation flights to various locations, including Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Jamaica. Some of the people on these flights arrived in the UK at you know very tender young ages and really only know life here in the UK. Are we witnessing another Windrush? Well, I mean... 
I sort of feel, and I know many will have more to say about this, but I sort of feel like the first Windrush scandal isn't even over. Um, so it's, we're not even at another Windrush. You know, the Windrush scandal is still happening. People are still fighting for compensation and their descendants are still vulnerable um, to deportation and, and other violations of their rights. Um, I mean, I think while I understand why this conversation focuses in particular on people who've lived in the UK for a very long time, I think we should be questioning the idea of automatic deportation post-conviction for anybody. Um, You know, whatever your views on the criminal punishment system, the point is, in theory, that somebody is convicted and serves their sentence, and that's the end of that. So I think when we know that the however long somebody's been in the country, when we know that the impact is so disproportionately racialized and classed, and I think also quite ableist, I think we should be thinking about actually whether those mandatory deportation provisions should be in place for anyone. Many Gracie mentioned that JCWI are probably all over this. I'm sure they are. Tell us all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree absolutely with what Gracie just said then. I mean, we've been quite lucky with these last few flights that we haven't had any clients on them. But JCWI in general completely opposes these kinds of deportations. You know, they're really cruel. They happen in the middle of the night. They tear people from their families. They often sometimes have been out of prison for absolutely years and have just had this kind of threat of deportation held over their heads. The reason that we're seeing this kind of speeding up of deportations over summer is obviously because the government has the asylum bill coming back in September. So twofold, they're trying to kind of rally up support for their terrible proposals that will come back in hopefully in September for committee stage. And also because the foundation of that bill is these Third country agreements deals with other countries to take people from the UK who supposedly don't belong here. Now, some of those deals we think are being secretly agreed. So the Zimbabwe deal, Zimbabwe previously didn't actually accept removals, which is why we're seeing some Zimbabwe flights now, because we think that the government has some kind of deal with the Zimbabwe government to suddenly accept these deportation flights. And again, some of the rationale behind that is really tied into international development and foreign aid because they've reduced the budget. So they're kind of using foreign aid as a threat to be held over international countries, um, you know, basically take the people that we don't want and we'll give you a bit more money for it, seeing as there's Mm. now a limited supply. Ian, let's talk about this uh, government panel reviewing the Human Rights Act, and of course we've we've seen Dominic Cummings get in a frothing fury about it on Twitter and his blog over the last couple of weeks as well. Brexiters loathe the European Court of Human Rights in particular, and never seem to sort of tire of bashing human rights in general. What's their goal? Well, ultimately, they just like to sort of get out of the whole thing, essentially sort of Brexit Mark II, right? Um, And in fact, if you remember, under the David Cameron government before Brexit, there was sort of an attempt to sort of prevent its rulings from being sort of of being advisory in in British law. It's important to to sort of create the distinction between the things that we're talking about. So the European Convention of Human Rights is, is based with the Council in the Council of Europe. That's completely separate to the EU. It's also distinct in a way from the Human Rights Act, which uh, before you could take your case to Strasbourg. Under the Human Rights Act passed by New Labour, you can do it in the UK as well, or England, Wales, whatever. Here's the thing. 
they've already launched an attack before Brexit that was to try to make it advisory. But then Brexit happened and it was fucking weird. Brexit in this counterintuitive way sort of shored up the European Convention, partly because it just took up all the fucking bandwidth and they just didn't have time. In fact, you know, they would say things like, we will get to this, but at the moment we kind of need to deal with this massive shitstorm we've created over here. The second part was that when they actually finalised the document, the security chapter three of the Brexit deal actually kind of forced the UK to stay with the ECHR. Um, And it said, look, if you don't, then we're going to remove all security cooperation. It's not clear whether the rest of the deal survives. I mean, most people think it would, that all you do is you'd lose the security cooperation part, but no one really wants to fucking lose that. So now they've got this panel and it's just like, well, which way are you going to go? You can either say, you can go the whole gonzo sort of way and just go like, look, we're fucking, we're going to just pull out of this motherfucker and we're going to take, you know, the no, no deal ECHR, basically, of just saying, you know, collapse your security cooperation, we'll just keep the trade deal. Or you can go back to the kind of things they were trying to do before and lessen like applicability in, in sort of domestic courts, see how that would fly, how much of a complaint there'd be from the Europeans. My guess would be on the latter, purely because if you look at the Judicial Review Bill, if you look at the way that Buckland has, has responded to things rather than Patel, it's a bit more incremental, it's a bit more nuanced, it's a bit more subtle, it's a bit more step by step. It's less sort of this fire and brimstone reactionary shit. So on that basis, I'd be getting that they're going to probably, and I'll, I'm prepared to eat my words on this because they can always outdo themselves and being complete bastards. But I think probably it'll be the more incremental of the option. Gracie, for listeners that you know, are probably sat at home thinking, yes, yes, human rights, I like those, they're good. <laughs> um, what specific rights are we talking about as being under threat if this act is is amended, repealed, changed um, from, from its current state? The Human Rights Act protects loads of important things. Um, it protects our right to freedom from torture, freedom from slavery, our private and family life, home and correspondence, our freedom of expression, uh, our freedom of belief and religion, our right to non-discrimination, our right to liberty. I mean, these are fundamental freedoms. And of course, some of them may be protected in some ways in, in, in other areas of law. But I think the key point is that government has said it doesn't want to take aim at any of these rights specifically. What it's very likely to try to do is weaken the mechanisms that mean that we can actually use the Human Rights Act to protect our rights. So it might make it harder to bring a legal case, for example, or at the minute, public authorities are actually required to act compatibly with our human rights. So before we even get to something going wrong and having to go to court, there's actually that proactive duty on them. And that could be taken away. Um, Government is also supposed to look at the laws it's making and check that they are compatible with our rights under the Human Rights Act. And look, I don't think that that's the strongest mechanism looking at the current raft of legislation before us, but it's something, right? So I think it's not that the government is necessarily going to strip away any particular right. It's just going to put them further out of reach for all of us. Paradoxically, assuming that we don't pull out of the European Convention on Human Rights entirely, it's actually going to mean more people end up having to go to Strasbourg to get a ruling that says that their rights have been violated. Whereas at the minute, it's much easier for that to happen in British courts. So the whole thing is kind of self-defeating. Now it's time for Overrated, Underrated. This week, it's the turn of our guest, Gracie Bradley. Gracie, what have you chosen for us? Okay, so I chose I chose coastlines, but I actually feel slightly regretful because I feel like no coastline can be overrated, but I've made my best. <laughs> <laughs> I'll lie in. 
I was in Whitstable the other day, which is kind of near Margate, and I would say that Whitstable isn't isn't the greatest bit of coastline, and Margate <laughs> definitely is much better. So you can you can definitely have that one. Don't worry. What about them? Are overrated and underrated? That was what I was going to say. I was going to say the Kent coast is really overrated. It's kind of muddy. It's not very <laughs> epic. It's a bit bitch. You might think that certain places in Cornwall are overrated, but actually I went to St. Ives a couple of years ago and I swam every morning in November and there was a seal in the oh bay with God. me one day. So actually Cornwall deserves its rating. Wow. Um, and I think underrated, severely underrated, uh, Dunbar in Scotland. Um, I love getting in the sea at Dunbar. It's the North Sea. Who would want to get in the North Sea? But it's so it's amazing. So, yeah, there we go. Do you get in with a wetsuit? I mean, I'm no, even, November, and even in Cornwall, is like Baltically cold, right? Yeah, I mean, no, I don't get in in a wetsuit. Wow. I, the only time I really stop swimming She's is hardcore, like January, January to March, maybe. But yeah, I go in on Christmas Day. I don't need a what wetsuit. The fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Ian, how badly would you freak out if a seal popped up next to you? <laughs> And could I kill it? (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time for But Your Emails. This week, Kate Mack has emailed us to say, this morning I read a lot of stories crowing that Gower Salt Marshlam was being awarded geographical indication status to prevent imitations being sold, and that this was some sort of Brexit success. Are these GIs recognised in Europe? What is the point of having our own scheme of protected products if they aren't? And apart from Ian's Doritos lasagna, what products would the panel give GI status? This is a great question. It is it's a great EU question. geekery and Doritos lasagna in one question. Take it's it away, Ian. Five stars. Can we just talk about what, what it is? Because I think it, it, it's, it's quite an odd sort of European system where you sort of take a particular sort of you know agricultural good and you say this was based on... on usually the kind of procedures in order to make it and also the place um so like the classic examples are things like champagne it's i find it on the plus side what it gives countries is you can sign a trade deal and you can really point quite easily to what we've achieved it's like look your sausages your fucking sausages they're in the deal you're so protected even though no one's ever heard of your belgian sausages you know no one gives a shit but still you can say that you've got something out of it um on the downside i always think it's a very weird view of sort of food and drink which is kind of a bit oddly reminds me of like the cultural appropriation stuff around sort of recipes that you Mm -hmm. get it's like as if you can just fix this stuff in time in one place whereas in actual fact you know they travel around the world and people add stuff and it's sort of a you know it grows so it it feels a bit like it sort of puts it in aspect or it just sort of freezes it in place um it's also you could you could gi (laughs) aspect is a kind of jelly isn't it you know, as I said aspect, I was thinking, am I using the right word? <laughs> so probably I can't answer that question. I'm not sure if I did use that correctly. The second thing is I'm not really sure that it even works for most products, right? Like, I mean, so, okay, the, the kind of product that it really does fucking work for is champagne. Okay. So, you know, if someone's thinking, I've got a date tonight, maybe they'll come back home. They're going to think I'm going to want champagne for the house, right? Because it makes you look sort of, you know, sexy and sophisticated. But most of them, you know, it comes to like Lincolnshire sausages and you're selling them, you know, I don't know, in Mozambique. I don't think that they fucking do think oh, this is a real <laughs> thing that I give a shit about. It's just in champagne, they think that way. So it's kind of a mixed bag. The reason that it's still happening now is because we, as part of the deal, we basically said, we're going to have our GIs. You got your GIs. You register in the UK GIs and then you can register in the EU GIs. So you're registering it in each place. It's 
it's definitely not a victory of Brexit in any way. All it would have entailed is that they had to register it twice, whereas before they would have registered it once. And anyway, it doesn't really make any difference to, what was it, marshland land? Salt, salt marshland, Gower Peninsula, presumably, in Wales, salt marshland. You see, this is kind of my point, right? That I just don't think the world is out there going, where the fuck will I get my Gower Saltland? I don't... Salt marsh. Salt marsh. Yes, I can't even remember it now. I had to read this question about five times. (laughs) (laughs) Why it was. And then I was like, are they just adding place names to, like, existing food? Could I just be like, you know, Skegness Fish and Chips and register it? I don't... I didn't really understand what the point is. But, yeah, like, for, for things like... Devonshire clotted cream, I suppose it makes sense. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, they have to kind of have the reputation first. Don't tell I the think. Cornish. Ooh, there we go. Gracie I've just got in trouble now. I'm going to get cancelled tomorrow for saying that. But, you know, you know what I mean. It's just what... Yeah, you have to have the reputation first in order to register, but that doesn't seem... I don't know. That seems random to me. I mean, if we haven't heard of it, there's a really good suggestion that other countries won't have heard of it either. Yeah. So there's that. If we're going to register anything, by the way, it's got to be a chip butty, right? But, but where, where to? to? Yeah. Fucking who? What the fuck are you two? <laughs> this is two-headed bullshit. I, I don't fucking know. I mean, I've given this half a second thought. <laughs> uh, yeah. Where have you had your best chip butter? Oh, they've all been. I mean, to be honest, I mean, none of them have been in London. Most up north, and then especially in Wales, where there's that whole thing, we're going to put curry sauce on it. You do yeah, want a bit of curry sauce yeah. to perfect a chip butty, I think. It'd I mean, that's controversial. It's hard to swallow, I suppose, if you've not got a bit of Yeah, and sauce. just also, like, in general, if you can add curry sauce to something, why mm. don't you do it? <laughs> well, Northeast listeners will know that a chicken palmo's probably got to get GI status. Uh, basically, no uh, restaurant survives in the Northeast, no matter what cuisine, if it doesn't have a chicken palmo on the menu. And I, I, I promise you, this is, this is, this is, this is a thing. Um, Gracie, uh, what would you award GI status? Any any food groups that you think need to be protected? I don't know, man. Minnie's got me feeling all defensive on on behalf of my Cornish. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, yeah, it's probably going to have to be Cornish clotted cream, Cornish pasties, Cornish everything. Um, yeah, Minnie, you brought out the worst in me. <laughs> And that's the show. My big thanks to Minnie. Thank you, everyone. Ian. Thank you. And our brilliant guest, Gracie Bradley. Thanks so much. Listeners, stay for the extra bit for Patreon backers where we find out about the time a dream came true from Birmingham teenager (laughs) Minnie Rahman. What can it be? You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Many thanks and best wishes from me to Stuart Harrison, Mike Andrew, Laura, Viv Huddy, David, Madeline Saunders and Pete Hughes. And it's a massive shout out from me to Eleanor Green, Caroline Scott, Rachel Ward, Fiona Andrew, Nathan Payne, Ronan Killane and Eleanor Andrew. And finally, it's thanks from me to Joe Bailey, Aisha Menon, Matt Nichols, James O'Shea, Jeffrey Luland, Michelle Farrington and Gavin Williamson's mum. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, what now? Was presented by Naomi Smith with Ian Dunn and Minnie Rahman. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelna Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Our intern was Nat Amos. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Now, please settle down for the greatest story ever told. 
Teenage Minnie meets the man who will break Britain into bits. Can we just, before we start, can we just say what the origin of this is, by the way? Which is that we did a fucking, what is it, like a, an extra bit. But God knows what, I can't remember. I can't remember anything that happened preceding this moment. And then at the end, Minnie I can just... remember. It was because we did a, Dorian did a quiz for us on PMQ quotes. Mm. And I knew all of them and they were all David Cameron. Oh, and yes. Dorian's You're got obsessed. this thing. Dorian's got this thing that I'm a secret Tory. And then I stupidly <laughs> told him this story. And now it's come to bite me. But it was so fucking weird because it was like we did the whole show, and then and then it was just like when recording stops, Billy just like, oh by the way, David Cameron can stay in my house. Just, what the fuck are you doing saying this now? Like how could you not have said this before? So now it's happening. Because so now it is happening. So yeah. Drum roll, drum roll, drum roll, Minnie. Okay. What the hell happened? Right. Okay. So you have to take yourself back to 2007. <laughs> I was young. I was 17 or 18. I was in college. I was like sneaking into clubs underage and I did not care about politics. So that's the context of me in this situation before everyone says, why didn't you do something different? Which is, (laughs) yeah, which is going to happen. Anyway, (laughs) David Cameron's just been elected as the Tory leader. And he's got this whole new hoodie, yeah, huskies, that big society. Yeah. I want to get to the grassroots communities. So what he decided was, I would like to get to the grassroots communities, uh, Muslim community in Birmingham, and I'm going to pick a random person from Birmingham whose house I'm going to go to and stay at and shadow for like a couple of days. And the person that he happened to pick was my uncle who lived with my grandma. So he stayed at my grandma's house for like two days and I happened to go around for dinner while David Cameron was there and got uh, got snapped talking to him and my picture was did they tell you he was going to be there or did they just like just come over for dinner honestly i can't remember but i also don't think i would have cared or paid any that was a trailer for the bonus edition of this week's podcast if you'd like a little bit more oh god what now every week without ads and a day early then sign up to back us on patreon for as little as two pounds a month you'll be helping the podcast and we will be very very grateful and don't forget our new weekly mini cast Oh God, what else is out every Monday morning? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 